um, as we were getting ready for this new year and where uh, I, was, I was doing some research and some study, uh, I ran across a, a short article, um, uh, like a, a beginning of the year prayer guide, and it talked about um, dangerous prayers. And so tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of borrow from that and jump off from that, and I want to talk to you tonight about dangerous prayers. How many of you have ever prayed a dangerous prayer? <laughs> not like, Lord, help me to jump off this cliff. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But um, dangerous prayers are the kinds of prayers um, that, uh, that, that endanger our comfort zone. They're the kind of prayers, like, like for instance, has anybody ever prayed for patience? <laughs> In case you hadn't heard, <laughs> don't pray for patience because <laughs> tribulation worketh patience. So when you pray for patience, God gives you tribulation, right? Um, but what I want to start off saying tonight is that sometimes we are guilty of praying safe prayers. It's not that any prayer is bad, but there are some prayers that invite God to radically change who we are, why we are here, and what we're doing with our lives. And, and safe prayers um, are not those prayers. Safe prayers are these kind of prayers. God, would you bless me? God, would you bless what I'm doing? Anybody ever prayed that? It's not a bad prayer, but it's pretty safe. Um, because God's probably not going to tear things up in your life, right? Uh, or, or God, give us traveling mercies. I never heard of that, but I went to a prayer meeting when I was about 12 years old and said, somebody pray for traveling mercies. I was like, holy cow, I didn't know you had to have a special kind of mercy for traveling. It was, blew my mind at 12 years old. But, but that's a safe prayer. You know, um, help me, Lord. Protect me, Lord. Provide for me, Lord. Heal me, Lord. They are the prayers that we're most familiar with because we pray them often. And they are prayers of addition. God, add things to me. God, empower what I'm doing. Enable me. Help me along the way. And, and all of those prayers are good. I'm not here to bash any kind of prayer. Um, we want you to pray. But there are dangerous prayers. And these are the prayers that lay everything on the line. They are the prayers that stretch us. Uh, that threatens our life as it now exists. Dangerous prayers are born out of brokenness, out of failure, out of frustration. When we come face to face with who we are and with who we are not, that's when we begin to pray dangerous prayers. Uh, if you think with me throughout um, his story in Genesis, Jacob had prayed. In fact, if you really study the history of Jacob, uh, Jacob knew God. His father was Isaac, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he had a great lineage of uh, understanding and knowledge of God within his family. Uh, he grew up in a household that revered God. He grew up in a, a home that uh, he heard about God. Jacob had prayed. He grew up knowing what it was to pray. Um, he even had incredible experiences that revealed uh, a vision of angels ascending and descending from heaven. The Bible says when he flees from Esau's face, God gives him this vision of angels uh, coming up and down from between heaven and earth on this ladder. And Jacob says, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So Jacob had some uh, religious understanding. He had uh, some history with prayer. And Jacob was the guy who had prayed, God bless me. But he had never truly prayed a dangerous prayer. Until 
The Bible says Jacob was one night removed from facing Esau again. And the brother that he had betrayed had last said of Jacob that if I ever see him again, I'm going to kill him. Esau was a hunter. He knew how to kill stuff. Jacob was sort of a mama's boy. He had lived in the house cooking food. And Jacob, just mark it down in your minds, was afraid of Esau. And here comes Jacob the night before he's going to meet Esau again. He hasn't seen him in over 20 years. This is the brother he had betrayed. And Jacob was forced to face who he had been and how unprepared he was to face his Esau. It well could have been Jacob's last night on earth. And in a way, that's exactly how it turned out. Jacob was going to die either way that night. Now, I've never seen this in Scripture before, but as I was studying today, I realized this, that this was Jacob's last night on earth, no matter how it went. Because Jacob had a choice. Jacob was either going to die by the hand of Esau, or Jacob was going to have to die to himself. There was no way that Jacob was coming out of the meeting with God at Jabbok. There was no way that Jacob was going to live beyond that moment. Jacob was at his end. He, the Bible says his name means supplanter. And that's exactly what he did from the earliest moments of his life. He came out catching the heel of his brother. And the Bible says that he had bargained and, and uh, uh, maneuvered his way into Esau's blessing. He had fooled his father Esau when he puts on a fake sleeve uh, of goat's hair to, to prove that he is Esau. Now, let me pause and say how hairy was Esau. Hey Amen. He was hairy. <laughs> I mean, goat's hair, that's hairy. But, but all of this stuff that Jacob had done... All of the maneuvering and supplanting that Jacob had done had brought him to this night at Jabbok. And it was the end of the line for Jacob. He could go no further in this life doing things as Jacob. Because judgment is sure. And Esau had sworn that if he ever saw Jacob again, he would kill him. And so that night at Jabbok, Jacob prayed dangerously. Ask yourself this, when the angel of the Lord shows up and Jacob there found a man and grabbed him and rest, why did he cling to him? Why did he grab him? Why did he wrestle with him? I believe it was because Jacob knew that who he was wasn't enough for what he was facing. The illusion of all of his schemes, of all of his plans, of all of his past were stripped away. And Jacob finally for the first time gets real with God in his life. And the Bible says, he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me and until you change me like you've never changed me before. Jacob isn't playing prayer time anymore. Jacob understands this is the end of the line for me. This is the end of the line for how I've been living. Either I will suffer the judgment that I rightly deserve at the hand of my brother or God is going to have to intervene and change who I am before I walk out of this place. Somebody say that's a dangerous prayer. He says I won't let go until you bless me and change me. 
I'm not letting go. You see, there, there are four things about a dangerous prayer that marks what a dangerous prayer is. Number one, a dangerous prayer will mark us forever. Because the Bible says that in that scene where, where Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord, um, that the angel of the Lord, as the day is breaking, says, Jacob, you need to let me go because I, I need to leave. And, and Jacob says, I'm not letting go. And so the angel of the Lord reaches down and touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And the Bible says that in, in the middle of the struggle, the angel touched his thigh and changed him forever because Jacob walked away with a limp. He never would overcome the injury and the pain that he suffered in the middle of that dangerous prayer. He never would walk the same again. And so dangerous prayers are the kind of prayers that when we pray them, they don't leave us the same way. That we can't do things the same way. We can't go about business the same way. That's a dangerous prayer. Dangerous prayers don't just mark us forever. They change our identity. He goes into the struggle as Jacob, but the Bible says he comes out with a new name. The angel of the Lord says to him, what is your name? What is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. Now, this, this just wasn't casual introductions. This is the angel of the Lord. He knows precisely who Jacob is. Knows precisely what Jacob's about. He knows his history. He knows every lie that he's told. He knows every scheme that he's pulled. He knows everything about Jacob. This isn't a, a casual introduction. He says, what is your name? What he needs Jacob to do is to understand who he is. He needs Jacob to understand and confess who he is. And so Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And he says, but now your name will be called Israel, a prince who has prevailed with God. Yes, you were Jacob, but I'm changing you because you wouldn't let me go. I'm changing you because of the prayer you prayed tonight. And now you are a prince who has prevailed with God. Then he walks out of there with a new identity. Jacob died that night. I'll probably preach this some other time so y'all act like you didn't hear it. But everybody has a choice. We either die through the judgment of the Esau in our life or we die to self. We either face the judgment of all of the things that we deserve or we can fall at the hand and the mercy of God and let him change us. But we've got a choice. Jacob has to die. And prayers that are dangerous will cause Jacob to die and Israel to live. Dangerous prayers, they don't just mark us or change our identity. They also bring us nearer to God. Genesis 32, 30 says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob had heard about God, seen visions of God, had all of these things. But Jacob walks out of this experience with a personal encounter, a personal relationship with God. Dangerous prayers change us in the heart of our hearts and they bring us into close relationship with God. And finally, dangerous prayers make an impact on those around us. Interesting. Sometimes we skip over this in the story, but the Bible says in Genesis 32, 32, it says, Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. In other words, Jacob's family was affected forever 
because of what happened to him when he prayed that prayer. Jacob's family was changed. They had a new tradition. They had a new understanding of who God is. And every time they went to cook up another animal, every time they brought in another cow uh, to be slaughtered, they would not eat the uh, the, the thigh sinew because they recognized that Jacob was changed and the angel touched the hollow of his thigh. Their story, their history was changed forever because of what Jacob prayed that night. So dangerous prayers, they don't just affect us, they affect those around us. And so tonight I want to talk to you about three different dangerous prayers that we can pray. Three different ones. And I hope that in this 21 days of prayer and in these final few days of prayer that you will pray these prayers because they are life-changing prayers. The first one is, Lord, search me. Somebody say that. Lord, search me. This is a confessional prayer. It is a prayer of a soul that needs and desires to come into alignment with God's will and God's ways. In fact, if you, if you want to turn there, uh, Brother Tommy, Psalm 139, verse 23. David prayed this prayer. He says in Psalm uh, 139, 23, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way that is everlasting. Psalm 139, what we don't realize is written when David was facing opposition of people who were claiming that David had the wrong motives. That David was in it for self. That David wasn't serving the Lord. He had enemies rising up in his kingdom saying this David is doing everything for all of the wrong reasons. And rather than defend himself, the Bible says that David instead goes to the Lord with this psalm, with this prayer. And there are four notable points we'll talk about in this prayer. But David recognized that I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to proclaim that I know my own motives and I know my own hearts. He didn't defend himself. No, he prayed, search me, oh God. Search me. In other words, God, if there's anything in me that I'm not seeing for myself, if there's any wicked way in me, God, I want you to expose it and I want you to show it to me. Search me, oh God, and know me. Why? Why would David resort to this prayer? How many of you have ever been accused of anything? Anybody ever been accused? You know, your first reaction is to defend yourself, right? Your first reaction is to say, no, I'm not. <laughs> You're in it for money, David. No, no, not in it for money. You know, if it was modern day politics, a tweet would be forthcoming like that. This is my rebuttal. David would have tweeted out, not selfish, just love the kingdom of God. Just collecting stuff for the temple. <laughs> right? David could have defended himself. He could have put out press releases or, as they call them in that, those days, decrees as the king. He could have done all of that. But David understood that the heart, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? When they begin to question the motives of David's heart, as a leader, what an incredible lesson. Because David looks back at them and instead of defending himself, he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, you know my motives better than I do. 
God, you know what's in me better than I do. You know why I do better than I do. And so, God, I don't need to defend myself. I need you to search me and to know me. Truth is that we all struggle to be honest with ourselves. Anybody can agree to that? If you can't, you might not be honest with yourself right now. We struggle to be honest with ourselves. And not, I mean, not just about big things, about little things too. There's no deception like self-deception. Humanity has a unique ability to tell ourselves things that just aren't true. And to convince ourselves of things that are just not true. In fact, we are all liars at some point or another in our life. I don't really eat that much. You ever said that? Yes, you do. You said that on the, I didn't eat that much. I, I think I caught myself saying that. At, I didn't eat that much at Christmas this year. Yes, I did. Who am I kidding? <laughs> Your heart will lie to you in a heartbeat. <laughs> I, I'm not that materialistic. I just like nice things. I will get to it later. No, you won't. In fact, you'll probably say, I'll get to it later, later. Or how about, I'm not gossiping, I just need to know how to pray for them. <laughs> we just need to know how to pray. We need to give us all the details so we know how to pray. We have the unique ability to convince ourselves, to justify ourselves, and our heart to tell us that we're doing something for one reason, when down deep we really know that we're doing it for another reason. The heart is desperately wicked and is deceitful above all things. And Jeremiah the prophet says, who can even know their own heart? Sometimes we don't even know why we do what we do. Anybody ever prayed that to God? God, why am I this way? Maybe you prayed it for someone else. Why are they that way? Why am I this way, God? Beyond the humor, there's a deep-seated reality that we do not know our hearts like God knows our hearts. David says, search me and know my heart, God. I think my motives are right. But you are the God who doesn't look on the outward man. But you're the God that chose me, that anointed me, that called me based on the inward man, based upon the heart. It's notable this is precisely how David was chosen by God when Samuel brought the oil and it appeared that Eliab would be next king. He was well suited for it. He was king material. But God tells Samuel, do not anoint him for I do not look on the outward man. God does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward things but God looks upon the inward man of the heart. And so David understood this. It was a foundational uh, uh, understanding of how David was anointed and so David thought his motives were pure but the only way that he could be sure was to ask God to search him and to know his heart a few years back I heard a Christian author say this and it stuck with me they said don't follow your heart lead it now we hear this in culture a lot is is you, you got to follow your heart in life you just got to follow your heart. And this author brought it to my attention because it was as if they were waving their arms saying, no, 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 no. Don't follow your heart because your heart is desperately wicked and will deceive you into thinking you're doing the right thing when you're doing the wrong thing. Anybody ever seen one of those movies where someone's stuck in a bad marriage and they meet this 
great new stranger and the movie has you trying to cheer for the marriage to break up and them to go with this great new person. Anybody ever notice that? That's exactly what Satan does to our hearts as he will paint us a picture and try to convince us of all of these good reasons. Well, that husband doesn't love like this romantic young guy loves, right? <laughs> and so we want to cheer for romance. No, the heart is desperately wicked. It is deceitful above all things. And the Christian author said, do not follow your heart. You have to lead it. You have to lead it. David wasn't following his heart. His heart would have said, take out the enemies. His heart would have said, you're right about this. His heart would have said, defend yourself. But David wasn't following after his own heart. David was following after God. He was leading his heart to God because he didn't trust that I'm doing this for the right things. He didn't trust who he was down deep. He trusted who God said he was and who God is. And David was leading his heart to God, saying, If I'm wrong in any way, Lord, please correct me. Now, now here's the difference. It's King Saul, when confronted, was the kind of guy who would throw a spear. But David was the kind of guy who would bring his heart back to the altar and say, God, I need you to search me and I need you to know me. And so David's first prayer was, know my heart, God. God, examine me, Lord. Look in the inner depths of my soul. Check out my motives, Lord. Begin to reveal and talk to me about who I am and why I'm here and what I'm struggling with. God, get down in the deep places and help me to understand my own motives and my own desires. Then David prayed, try me and know my thoughts. The word for try means test. David wanted God to put his thoughts to the test. He's saying, test me, God. Try me. Test me. Know my thoughts. Now, the word thoughts here is uh, from a Hebrew word called serapayim, which means anxious thoughts or concerns. And so here's what David says. He says, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Know the things that give me anxiety and that worry me. God, begin to test me in the areas of my fears, in the areas where I don't trust you. Reveal to me my fears. David was asking God to know my heart and reveal my fears. He wasn't talking about phobias or, or normal fears like spiders or snakes or things like that. He was talking about areas within his soul that were dominated by anxiety and worry. What are the things I'm genuinely worried about? Not am I worried you know, that I'm not going to be the first in line at Starbucks in the morning. No, that, that's not a worry. But the things that plague our soul. I'm worried that I will never be enough. I'm worried that my marriage may not make it. I'm worried that something will happen to my children. I'm worried that I won't have enough that God won't provide for me. And what we fear most reveals where we trust God the least. What was David afraid of? David was afraid of losing the kingdom. He was afraid that Absalom's uh, uh, little coup was going to work. David was afraid that after all of these years of serving God, that somehow he would lose this throne that God placed him on. 
David had anxious thoughts. He thought his enemies might prevail against him. He thought his enemies might actually win. And so when we begin to reverse engineer our anxious thoughts and fears, it reveals the areas in our life where we struggle to trust God. It reveals the areas of our life where we're struggling to believe God. And David wants to believe God. And so he says, God, I need you to search my heart. And I need you to reveal to me my fears, God. I want you to lay it open. Expose it in in your eyes. God let let it be seen and known God so that it can be dealt with reveal my fears talk to me about what I'm struggling with deal with me about what I'm struggling with he said know my thoughts Lord know my thoughts David wanted to be sure that God tested and knew his concerns And we have to come to this point in praying this prayer. When we pray, Lord, search me, what we're really saying is, God, lay open the inner workings of who I am and why I do what I do. Not for the sake of God. God already knows it. But for my sake, Lord, so that you can reveal and speak to me and lead me in the way everlasting. Understand this. Undealt with fears in unsearched hearts, cannot be transformed. We've got to give God access to the areas that we have trouble accessing ourselves and begin to let God speak to us about why we fear what we fear. For instance, I'm worried that I won't have enough. What we're really saying is I don't trust that God is my provider. I don't know how we're going to make it. Maybe money is a fear for you. And and maybe that's why you don't give. And maybe that's why you don't tithe because you're scared that if I make this step of faith that God's not going to come through for me in the way that other people have said He's come through. What if it doesn't work? It's the same reason that when the Spirit speaks to us to go pray for somebody for healing, we... But what if they don't get healed? And our fears reveal the areas in which we don't trust God. But God can't fix what we don't expose. Amen. God can't fix what we won't allow Him access and entrance into. It's like the man with the withered hand. God could heal it, but God said, first, stretch forth thine hand. Show it to me. Invite me into your heart. Invite me into your fears. Let me in to your thoughts, and I'll begin to talk to you about who you are and where you're going. David then prayed, and Lord, try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. You know, we tend to hide our sins. Anybody ever notice that? Cover our shame and act with God and men as if such a thing were not possible, that we could never be that person that did that thing. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened by sin, the scripture says. And when they saw and felt the shame that came with it, the Bible says they run they find fig leaves and they clothe themselves with fig leaves and they hid from the face of God. And I want to tell you that ever since then, humanity has been following the same pattern. We rationalize. We justify. We make excuses. We try to handle sin in our own inferior way. But David's prayer was dangerous because it wasn't one of those polite prayers. David was saying, God, I want you to search my heart. 
I want you to do heart surgery on me, God. I want you to get in deep, and I want you to know what I fear. I want you to reveal to me my fears. And God, if there's sin that's under the surface, God, if there's sin that's lurking and crouching behind the door, God, I want you to expose my sin. We naturally run away. We naturally don't want people to know about our sin. We naturally hide. We put on the fig leaves in our own ways. But what Adam and Eve didn't understand is God had a better way of dealing with covering sin. It wasn't through the fig leaf. It wasn't through their own methods and strategies for trying to cover their shame and hide from the face of God. The Bible says when God came for them in the Garden of Eden, He called, where are you? And finally they came out and He said, why are you hiding? And they said, well, we were naked and we were ashamed. And he said, who told you you were naked? The gig's up. They're found out. God knows what has happened to them. And they say, well, we were ashamed. We were ashamed. And so we hid. And we put on these fig leaves. And the Bible says God in mercy provides a sacrifice and covers them with coats. Where did the coats come from? Something had to die in order for their sin to be covered. Something had to die in order for their shame to be covered. And God says, you know what? Your way is not the way. Your way leaves you uh, separated and hidden from the face of God because you're afraid of your sins being uncovered. But he said, I provided a sacrifice for you that in that sacrifice you can find a covering for your sins. David says, God, before you can cover it, you've got to uncover it. God, before you can fix it, you've got, I've got to reveal it to you. I've got to come out of my hiding. God, I've got to come out of the bushes. God, I've got to come out and I've got to expose everything that I am and everything that I've done to you. He said, Lord, test me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Let me tell you something. This is why this is dangerous. Because what you do when you pray, Lord, search me, is you tear down the illusion that you've got it all together. You tear down the illusion that God picked you because you're better. You tear down the illusion that you've done anything that's worthy of the mercy and the grace of God. And it's dangerous to the old you. Because you can't come out of a prayer like that without God showing you some stuff and working on some stuff. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of people who pursue Christianity at the, at the most shallow level they can because they're afraid to pray, Lord, search me. Because if He searches me, then I've got to deal with it. If He searches me, then I've got to deal with it. I can't just act like I don't know. I can't just act like everything's okay. I can't just come to God and, and pretend that I'm something that I'm not. Then I'm honest before God. This is why it's a confessional prayer. David is admitting, Lord, I am not perfect. God, I'm fundamentally flawed at the core of who I am. And I need your help. And David ended this powerful prayer by summing it all up with this, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. David was telling God, I don't trust me. I can't follow me anymore. I don't know my own heart. I can't discern the root of my own fears and can't deal with my own sin. I have no way out except if you will speak to me and lead me. Lead me 
in the everlasting way. Lead me in the way that leads to eternal life. It was dangerous because God, uh, David was giving God permission to sit on the throne of his life. And let me tell you something, a prayer like that changes things. If you've got areas in your life that are untouched, that are undealt with, you ought to pray, Lord, search me. But be careful because when you pray it, your life will change and God will begin to deal with you. And it won't happen overnight. It's a process of life that God will continually reveal things that are in your heart so that you can work through them. And it begins to uh, change things in you and you become formed in the image of Christ. You begin to reflect Christ and all of a sudden your life is different because you prayed a prayer. Lord, search me. Somebody say, Lord, search me. The second prayer that is dangerous that I'm going to pray I know I'm kind of jumping around tonight, is Lord, make me. Somebody say, make me. Lord, make me. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this prayer, but I love the picture that the Scripture gives us in Luke 15. These words, Lord, make me, come from the words of the broken prodigal son. He's sitting in the pig pen that his choices have brought him, and... He finally has come to himself, the Bible says. He's come to himself. He realizes, I've made a waste of my life, and I am undone. And he says this, Luke 15, 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Listen to it. And he says, make me as one of thy hired servants. The prodigal prayed, Make me. This prayer is a transformational prayer. Because if you rewind back to the beginning of the story, you'll find that his first request from his father was not make me. It was give me. He said, Father, give me this part of the portion of your goods that belongs to me. Give me my inheritance. Give me my son. Divide unto me, the King James says, my earthly goods. And so his first request from God is, Lord, bless me. Give me something. God, I want something from you. Now, I'm going to pause here and say this is the lowest level of spiritual maturity. There's a lot of people that come to God at the beginning, and the first thing they have to say to God is, God, give me. Like, God, if you've got all this stuff, give it to me, Lord. Lay it on me. It's, I want the blessing. Listen, we could sing and preach about blessing and fill this house up. People want to pray that prayer, Lord, give me. And it's not always wrong to pray. It's just the lowest level of spiritual maturity. And the Bible says that he comes and he says, Lord, he says, Father, give me what is mine. Give me the portion that's mine. He's interested in autonomy, in independence. He wants to receive his inherited promise. Uh, He was ambitious and self-determined. He took what was his and he did what he wanted with it. The Bible says he desired a new country. And so he went to another place. He wanted out from under the watchful eyes of the Father. And so he goes and wastes his inheritance until life broke him. After the breaking, the Bible says he comes full circle. And now in the pig pen, he doesn't want to be self-determined. He isn't interested in his father's riches. He had only hoped that there was a place the Father could find for him in his house. And so he prays this prayer. He says, make me as one of thy hired servants. 
You see, transformational prayers allow God to shape and to mold us. They seek God's sanctifying power, strength, and grace as we work out the gospel in our life through confession, through repentance. They seek God's leading by submitting to His word and surrendering to His ways. And I want to tell you this, that God cannot make us until something breaks us. God can't make us until something breaks us. Psalm 51, he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What, what does it mean to be broken? It means to be reduced to the point of humbly realizing and accepting that without Jesus we are nothing. It is to understand that we are spiritually bankrupt without Him and have nothing to offer Him but our total brokenness. Simply put, being broken is to die to self and totally surrender to Him. Self, the prideful me that wants to be in control of my life, must be reckoned as dead because self does nothing to bring him glory. And so when we are finally broken, when we find ourselves in a pig pen, when we find ourselves at the culmination of all of our failures, we are at the place and in the prayer that God always answers is, Lord, break me. Break me. You know, I, a few years ago, this is not in my notes, but I, I feel to say, a few years ago, my sister had kind of wandered from God. She came to talk to me. Her marriage was falling apart. She was depressed. She was struggling with bondage and sin in her life. And as she sat down and talked to me, I was pastoring near, near there at that time. I, I asked her this question. And I was afraid it might offend her. It probably did a little bit. But after she had told me all of the conditions of her life, I asked her, I said, was it better before you left God? Was it better before you walked away? Were you happier? Was your marriage better? Was it better for you? Or are you happier now? How, how's this way of living working out for you? And she says, I wish I could go back. That was her response. I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back. I'm reminded of the story of Hosea and Gomer. When the prophet marries the prostitute and gives her a home. And the Bible says that after a few years she leaves and breaks up with him and, and, and goes back to her old life. And God speaks to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go back and I want you to take her again. Because she's fallen back into slavery. She's at this broken place. And when Hosea goes to find her, he finds her on this auction block. And Hosea brings all of his goods and he pays a high price to buy back a wife that he had been betrayed by multiple times. And the Bible says that this is a typology of God and Israel. And, and then the Bible says that Hosea takes Gomer from the auction block. And the Bible says he takes her into the wilderness. Not to punish her, not to, to lay her low, not to prove to her or lord over her how terrible her mistakes were. When she was at this broken place, he said to Israel, so the Lord says, as Hosea said to Gomer, so the Lord says to Israel, I will allure you and I will bring you into the wilderness so that I can speak 
peaceably to you there. And so that I can there sing the wedding song to you again. God says, you've betrayed me and you've come to this broken place. But my only desire for you is not to break you, but it's to make you. And he says, there, I'll bring you into this dry place. He says to Gomer, he says, I will take away everything that your other lovers gave you. I'll take it all away and I'll bring you to this place where you're on an auction block and I'll take you into the wilderness away from everything you thought you had. I'll let you lose it all so that you're finally broken. And there from brokenness, there from brokenness, the Lord says, I can make you again. It's Jeremiah witnessing the scene on the potter's wheel as the hands are in the clay and the the clay is marred in the hands of the master. And the potter could have well and justifiably thrown out the clay that didn't work. There was other clay that was better clay. But the Bible says that he puts his hands in the clay again. And he says when the clay was marred in the hand of the master and in the hand of the potter, that he made it again. He made it again. It was broken. But only when it was broken could he make it over again. And so when we pray this prayer, Lord, make me. It's dangerous because what we're really saying is, Lord, will you break me? Lord, will you take all the stuff out of me that doesn't need to be there? Lord, will you strip away everything that takes my eyes off of you? Lord, will you make me in your image? The Lord can't make us until he first breaks us. It's no coincidence that anointing oil is made from the pressing and the crushing of olives. Everything that God did in the temple had a crushing behind it. Everything that God did in the kingdom had a crushing behind it. And so when we pray, Lord, make me, what we're really praying is, God, put me in the process that will bring forth the best stuff out of me. God, put me in the process so that when I go in, I won't come out like I went in, Lord, that I will come out. He knows the way that I take, Job said, that when I come forth, I've been pressed, I've been crushed, it's hurt, the process hasn't been pleasant, it hasn't been all blessing and testimonies I've lost some stuff along the way I've lost some people along the way I've suffered some pain along the way but God is making me and through the crushing comes the anointing hallelujah through the crushing God never did anything in his kingdom that didn't have a crushing behind it a breaking behind it the Lord took the bread in his hands And broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. The victory that we live in today, the freedom that we live in today, it came through the breaking. It came through the crushing. And so it's dangerous when we pray, Lord, will you make me? Because God will. And you've got to trust the purpose in the process. Amen. Sometimes our greatest area of ministry flows from our greatest area of pain. And so, we ought to pray, Lord, make me. But just know that when you do, <laughs> that you're just going to have to trust God through the process. Amen. I, wa- I want to jump ahead and-, and spend the last few minutes here talking about the last prayer. Because this is the one that just lit my world up today as I was studying. The last, last prayer is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah prayed, Lord, 
here am I. Send me. Isaiah chapter 6. Lord, here am I. Send me. Have you ever noticed most of our prayers are prayers for people we love or for ourselves? How many of you ever like go in the morning when you go to pray and you're like, you just start listing. God, bless my kids. Keep my kids today. And, and bless my friend and, and that need and this need. And Lord, you know I need that promotion. <laughs> Lord, you, Lord you, my bank account is open before your eyes today. <laughs> You know I need a blessing from heaven. Have you ever noticed we pray about ourselves and people we love? Lord, help them get into school. Heal my grandma. Help me get a job. Help my marriage. And we should pray those prayers, but we shouldn't limit our prayers to that. We want God to do for us. But what if we prayed more about what we could do for God? And that's where this prayer lands. Isaiah has this incredible encounter with God. Incredible encounter with God. And he hears the call of God. And, and I'm going I'm to get more to it in a minute. But Isaiah hears the call of God and he prays, Lord, here am I, send me. Now, there are multiple times where people were call, called of God in the Old Testament. And, and there's three that I'm going to pick out. There was Jonah. Anybody remember Jonah? Big fish, ate him up, spit him out. Incredible story. In fact, what's really incredible about that story is that the people of Nineveh worshipped a fish god. And so you here you have this guy who was spit up on shore by a fish. That's why they listened to him. God had a plan in all of it. But when God calls Jonah, here's how Jonah responds. He says, here am I, Lord, but I'm not going. I don't like those people. Those people have been against you. They've hated you. They've done evil. They, they, they kill your people. God, they, they're terrible people. And so God I hear you, and I'm right here, but Lord, I don't want to go. And so he runs away from God. This, this happens to all of us. We sense the call of God and say, I, I hear what you're saying, God, but I'm not the one to do it, and I'm not going. We say it differently. I would, but I've got too much going on, Lord. Lord, I wish I had the time to answer this burden that I feel, right? Lord, I wish I could do it but I just, I just can't afford to do it right now. I, I can't give. I see the need, but Lord, I can't afford it. I'm here, Lord, but not me. That was Jonah. God, I hear you. I hear what heaven is saying, but Lord, I can't go. It's not for me. Jonah ran from God. Side note, look how that worked out for him. <laughs> Moses hears the call of God, and he says, Here am I, Lord. Send someone else. Because Moses begins to look at his own life. He's a stuttering shepherd who has a history, a felonious history, right? He is a murderer in Egypt. He has killed a man, didn't mean to, but ended up at this place in life. And, and Moses says to God, who, me, who am I that you would send me? He said, my brother Aaron is perfectly suited. God, send Aaron. Aaron was almost voluntold in the ministry. As God shows up and says, my people need to be free. And Moses says, hey, send Aaron. You know, he volunteers. Anybody ever been volunteered when you weren't available? Aaron almost got roped in to being Moses. Moses says, God, I can't do it. I'm not qualified. Someone else would be better for that. And God has to deal with Moses and help Moses to realize that it's not about who he is. But it's about who God is, right? 
so that's the second response. But then here comes Isaiah, and Isaiah hears the call of God. And when he does, he says, here am I, send me. So my question to you is, why did Isaiah have a radically different response than Moses did and then Jonah did? Now, Jonah did the will of God because God essentially intervened on free will for a little while. Moses did because God helped Moses to understand that he is the on-time God, Yahweh God, who was with him. The I am that I am will be with you when you go. But Isaiah didn't need any convincing because Isaiah had some things happen in his life that allowed him to fully surrender to God. And so I want to talk for the last couple minutes here of what you need to fully surrender to God. Now, Isaiah chapter 6 is a phenomenal passage of Scripture. And, and the first thing that happens, the Bible says in Isaiah 6.1, is in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw something that Moses didn't see, he saw something that uh, Jonah didn't see. Isaiah caught a vision of God. Isaiah had a genuine experience in the presence of God. He said, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah caught a vision of God that changed everything for him. He had no doubts about who God was and what he was capable of. He saw it laid out before him in a vision. And so the first thing you need to do to fully surrender to God is have an experience with God. When you get a vision and an understanding of who God is and what He's about, that He is not one to be trifled with, that He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He saw Him sitting on His throne. He didn't see Him born in a manger. He saw Him in the throne room of heaven. He saw that the train of His robe which represented all of His victories, that it filled the whole temple. And Isaiah had an understanding of this is the God that's talking to me. You need a genuine experience with the presence of God. Isaiah had no doubts about who God was and what he was capable of. God had to tell Moses because all Moses saw was a burning bush and heard a voice. But Isaiah had no doubt. He saw him on the throne. Somebody say a genuine experience with God. Secondly, the Bible continues says, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And listen to what Isaiah says, he says, and I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm unworthy, not only am I unworthy, but everybody that I know is not worthy of this God. And so the second thing that you need in order to totally surrender to God is a genuine awareness of your sinfulness and everybody else's too. Now I'm not saying God needs to give you a sheriff's badge to go be the holy judge of everybody. What I'm saying is Isaiah got a full revelation of how holy God was and how unholy man was. 
he says, when he sees the angels and the throne, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And not only that, but everybody I've ever met are people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm not worthy. Isaiah came to a quick realization of how unworthy and sinful he was. All the illusions of his own goodness evaporated, and he was left with the understanding that he and everybody else he knew was not worthy. There were no questions about the plight of those around him when he genuinely experienced God. He genuinely understood how lost he was and how lost everybody else was. God showed him through his holiness that Isaiah, you're not up for this. And he had a revelation of how completely unworthy each and every one of us are. Then one of the seraphim, he says, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. And listen, he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah had an experience with God. He saw God on the throne. He had a revelation of the sinfulness of man. Woe is me. But he also had a grip and understanding of God's grace. Because the angel came and touched him with a coal from the altar. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. He says, just as sinful as you are, as, as red as the blood of guilt is upon you, the Lord can touch it and he can make it white and clean and pure as snow. Isaiah understood the extent and the power of the grace of God. He became painfully aware of his sinfulness, but then he sees the angel take a coal from the altar and cleanse his lips and take away his sin. And he receives a revelation of the goodness and the grace of God to everyone who needs it. Now, a few years ago I heard a preacher say this, and it stuck with me. And it's become something I say often. That there are two pillars to the gospel. Two, two understandings that hold up the gospel. And the first one is that I am far more sinful than I ever thought I was. When we pray, search me, O God, we find out. I was doing righteous things for unrighteous reasons. I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm doing religious stuff with hate in my heart, right? I'm doing religious stuff. He said, I excelled among my peers, in all things. I was the most religious of the religious. He was doing right things with wrong motives. I'm far more sinful than I ever thought I could be. I'm far more sinful than I thought I can be. I've met a few atheists over the last few years. And you know what I've told them? I haven't shamed them. I've said, if I had lived your life and experienced your experiences... I probably would have come to the same conclusion. Because we need no illusion that we are somehow more better suited to know and to serve God. I'm far more sinful. Far more sinful than I ever could have imagined. But that's one pillar of the gospel. That I am desperately lost without Jesus Christ. 
And here's the other pillar of the gospel. Is that God is far more gracious than I ever thought He could be. I'm far more sinful than I ever thought I was. And God is far more graceful. Because the Bible says where sin did abound, grace doth much more abound. And so I was lost. I was a murderer. Paul said I did all of these things and I did them thinking I was doing the right thing. I'm far more evil. But he said God who loved me, He found me and He called me out of darkness into His marvelous light that I would show forth the praises of God to all the people. Understand this, God is far more graceful. And this is what Isaiah experiences in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the sinfulness of himself and mankind and then he sees the gracefulness of God. And then he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And God said, Go and speak to this people. Why did Isaiah say, Here I am, Lord, send me? Because like no one else, Isaiah understood the greatness of God. The unfathomable glory of God was revealed to him. The unsearchable sinfulness of man was shown to him. And the incredible depth of the grace of God was laid out before him. And if we can understand how great God is and how lost we are and how able he is to save us and to save our family and to save our community and to save people around us, then we can pray and say, Lord, I want to go. I want to go tell somebody about what I found out. I want to tell them, God, that I was way more sinful than I thought I was. That when I begin to pray, Lord, search me, God, you begin to show me all of these different ways that I was falling short. But God, that's not all I want to tell them. What I want to tell them is no matter how low you've been, no matter how broken you are, no matter how far from God you are, the grace of God can reach you. And a touch from the altar can cleanse you. And God can save you from your brokenness and bring out beauty and so he prays Lord send me it's dangerous to pray God send me because we don't pray God send me to the grocery store we don't pray God God send me to do simple stuff but Isaiah was signing up to be a prophet to the nations he was saying Lord I'll make it my mission in life to let somebody else know what I saw when in the year that King Uzziah died. It changed everything for Isaiah. It changed everything about his life. Did he know God before? Yes, he knew God, but not like he knew God now. Did he preach before and prophesy? Yes, he did, but not like he did now. Because now he understood that I'm not worthy of this. The only reason I'm here is because of the grace of God. And you can be here too. He said, I'll go. Lord, here I am. Jonah's running and Moses doesn't think he's worthy but Lord I see the depths of your grace and how able you are to save the sinner and so Lord I'll go send me here I am Lord send me I see how far they are from your throne here I am Lord send me it's a dangerous prayer Because when we pray about it, God's going to open our eyes to the harvest that's already ripe. God's going to open our eyes to people around us that need to be witnessed to. 
There are people that you sit across the table from every day that you ought to not let another week go by, another day go by without telling them about the grace of God. Telling them about the goodness of God. Lord, send me. Isaiah saw what Moses could not see and what Jonah did not see. And so he said, Lord, here am I. Send me. What I want you to note is that if we pray this, God will move us out of our comfort zone and into His purpose. And others are at the heart of this prayer. It's not about us. It's not about our calling. It's not about our purpose. Things we talk about, it's not about our promise. It's simply about the fact that there are people who desperately need to know how good God is and need to be called back to Himself. And so we pray, Lord, send me. It's a dangerous prayer. Tonight I close with this question. What is God trying to show you? And where is God trying to send you? I pray that, that in this 21 days that something would awaken within your soul to stop fooling around with God. You know, we can ask God for items and things and, and that's all great and grand and there's a place for that in faith. But we've got to start praying the dangerous prayers that change our lives, the, the dangerous prayers that change our families and our communities. I want us to stand together. I want our ushers to go ahead and get ready. We're going to receive our offering at the end of service, as we always do. In case you didn't know why we did that, we wait for you all to show up. <laughs> Amen. It's a very spiritual reason. But I, my prayer for somebody tonight is that you'll walk away from this and you'll pray some of these dangerous prayers. That, Lord, I'm not satisfied I'm not satisfied with undealt with areas in my heart, so I'm going to pray, Lord, search me and know me. You know, there's something powerful about being fully known of God and still being fully loved. There's something powerful that happens to us that overtakes us. There's something incredible about knowing that even though we go through pain, that there's purpose in pain and that the Lord can take our breaking and use it to make us. And there's something incredible about understanding just how incredibly blessed we are to have experienced God, to have recognized our own sinfulness, and to know the depths of the grace of God. My prayer is you'll pray one of these dangerous prayers. Ushers, please come.